As we look into Ephesians chapter 1, you, if you weren't here last week, we saw that just in the few verses, the beginning verses of Ephesians 1, we looked at last week verses 1 through 10, six times Paul says, uses this concept of being in Christ, in Him, in His love. And in the verses that we just read this morning, there's he continues, as if we forgot, as if it wasn't enough, he continues this idea, this theme of being in him. And why does he do that? Because the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is a book about the church. It's written to the church in Ephesus for them to understand what the church is all about, but it's as if he wants us to understand in chapter one, before you understand what the church is about, you first have to understand who you are. And so the question that he answers in chapter one one of Ephesians is not what is the church, he answers the question, who is the church? And that is so important for us to understand, who are we in light of this great work? And we talked about last week how Paul, if anybody understood the qualifications of standing on your own merit, on your own record, it was the Apostle Paul, and it's his way of saying, if, if I understand what it means to now stand on the record of Christ, if I understand what it means to stand in Christ, you have to understand, in order to be the church that God has called us to be, we have to understand who we are. And this repetition continues in verses 11 through 14, and what we see here in these few verses is that in light of being in Christ, in light of being a church that has been called out in the person and work of Christ, he wants us to understand in verses 11 through 14 that we are people of hope. In light of being found in Christ, in light of being redeemed in Christ, in light of being forgiven in Christ, we are people of hope. So verses 11, 14, it's all about hope. And what I want us to do briefly before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want us to answer three questions regarding hope. Three questions regarding this great hope as we hear it in verses 11, 14, 11 through 14. First question is this, where do we find this hope? What do we hope in? But well, we see it in verse 12. Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in who? In Christ. Our hope is found in Christ. And you go, that's pretty basic. I came to church to find out that our hope is in Christ. I knew that before I got here. But it's so important that we remember that. Because although we know that, we don't live like that. We don't really believe that ultimately our hope is in Christ. Why? Because we are bombarded every day with the very opposite of verse 12. Paul says our hope is found in Christ, but what does the world say? We are bombarded every day with people and businesses and politicians and investors, who, whoever it might be, saying, put your hope in me, put your hope in this, put your hope in this next best thing right? That is the struggle that we face every single day of our lives, struggling to believe that our hope is ultimately found in Christ. And this idea of hope actually takes us all the way back to the garden, because really that was ultimately what resulted in the fall. See, God in the garden, as he creates Adam and Eve, and he puts, us in, puts Adam and Eve in this place, this place of perfection, this place of hope, what did Adam and Eve ultimately fail to believe? That all of their hope could be found in God. And Eve said, no, no, my hope is found in myself. 
And that would be the struggle that we would face for the rest of our lives, believing, actually believing that hope could be found in us, that hope could be found in our efforts, hope could be found in our performance, hope could be found in what we do, and failing to believe that ultimately my hope has to be found in God and for the Christian, specifically in the person of Christ. And what's interesting about this word hope is that the word hope in our modern vocabulary, reconciling it with the biblical definition of hope, it just doesn't work. When we use hope today, how do we use it? I hope so. I I hope it all works out. Hopefully they will make it. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says your hope is in Christ. Actually, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Does the author of Hebrews use the word hope as a hope so or hopefully that it will all come to pass? No, he uses words like it's assurance, it's conviction. See, the biblical definition of hope is it is a done deal. It is not a hope so, it is not hopefully being found in Christ. It is a done deal, it is a sure thing. Why? Why the difference between our modern definition of hope and the biblical definition of hope? The object. The object makes all the difference in the world. You see, when your hope is in ourselves, when your hope is in someone else, people are broken. People are fallen. People are imperfect. We place our hope in an imperfect object or an imperfect thing. When when Paul says our hope is in Christ, the object is perfect. The object is immovable. The object is faithful. The object is never failing. So that our modern definition needs to be readjusted with the biblical definition of hope because we do not hope in something that fails. We do not hope in something that is broken. We do not hope in something that is imperfect so that we can go through life not just going, hey, I'm a Christian and I hope it all works out in the end. I hope he's there. I hope he won't leave me when the Lord forsake me. Paul says, no, we hope in Christ. We are people of hope, and we put our hope in an immovable object that never fails us, that never forsakes us. We can say, no, not hopefully, not hope so, but our hope is grounded in the rock of Jesus Christ. So where do we find our hope? We find our hope in Christ. But what do we hope for? If our hope is in Christ, what are we actually hopeful for? What are we hoping in? What's the great promise? That's the second question. What do we hope for? We find it in both the end of verse 12 and the end of verse 14. We see the promise of redemption and renewal that Zach talked about earlier. The longing for renewal, the longing for redemption. Where, what do we, where do we see it in verse 12? We see the promise, the, our, the promised hope of redemption and renewal. It says, for the, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? We see glory, the word glory a lot in the Bible, but we 
rarely understand what it, what it actually means. The definition of glory is simply the, the manifestation of the attributes of God. When God reveals himself and we see his power or we see his sovereignty or we see his holiness or we see his love, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God in the temple in Isaiah 6, that is his glory. So anytime his attributes are revealed or manifested to his people, that is his glory. But what does Paul say here? We will be the praise of his glory. What does he mean there? He's talking about redemption and renewal. How? How were we originally created in the garden? We were created in the image of God. We were created in the very image of God to reflect the glory of God. But because sin entered the world, what happened? The image has been tainted. The image has been broken. The image has been stained. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying the hope, the promised hope for us as Christians is that God is bringing us back to the garden. He is bringing us back to restoration. He is bringing us back to that place where we would one day again, be the image bearers of God. See, that's our hope. That's what we hope for. That's the promise of our hope, that God is taking our past. He's taking our present. He's taking our failures. He's taking our brokenness. He's taking our sin. He's taking the mess that we've made out of our lives. And here's the good news this morning. He's saying, for those that are in Christ, here's the promise of hope. That even in the midst of your brokenness, even in the midst of your despair, God is actively working in your life to one day bring about the full redemption and renewal of that image that you will once, one day once again bear the image of the creator. What a beautiful thing that people will look at you and they will praise the Father. You will be the praise of his glory. They will look at you and they will be pointed to the majesty and to the love and to the sovereignty and to the holiness of God. But it's not just personal renewal and redemption that we long for. In verse 14, it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire what? Possession of it to the praise of his glory. What's the possession? We find out about the possession in Romans 8. Actually, look at Romans 8, verse 20 through 2 through 25. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What is happening here in Romans chapter 28 is that Paul is trying to say that there's both a personal longing for redemption and renewal, but there is a material longing for redemption and renewal. Now not just will one day we ourselves be personally renewed and redeemed, but the whole cosmic order will be as well. Paul, uh, Paul is trying to say here that actually we not only groan for the day where our bodies will be restored, that we will be restored and redeemed as the image bearers of God, but the creation itself is longing for the day as well. And he's saying that's what is happening here in verse 14 in Ephesians 1. Until we take possession of it, that we're not just longing for the renewal of our image and our person, 
but we're longing for the renewal of all things. John in Revelation 21, when he records this beautiful picture of the end days, we see this beautiful picture of heaven being married to earth. Earlier in Revelation, what does he record Jesus saying from the throne? Behold, I'm making all new things. No. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. All of the broken people and the broken places and all of the brokenness that you see on God's green earth, all of the things in, the, in this world, because of Christ, will be made new. So there is this idea that we are not just longing with hope for personal renewal and redemption, but we are longing for all things to be made new, for all things to be redeemed, once again taking us back to the garden where we not only reflect the glory of God, but that the earth is married to heaven and God, through Jesus Christ, makes all things new. The restoration of all things, the restoration of everything because everything is broken. Not just people will be renewed, but relationships and communities and culture. What a beautiful picture of God's redeeming grace. So we, our hope is found in Christ. The promise of that hope is the renewal and redemption of all things. And then lastly, what guarantees this hope? Because if I was to ask you this morning, we were all to be really honest, and I was to ask a show of hands, has anybody broke your heart? Has anybody broke a promise? Has anybody let you down? Every hand in this room would go up if we were honest. And so what guarantees that all of this will be true? What guarantees that one day all things will be made new? That all the injustices in this world will be made right? That everything broken will be made whole again? That everything that is broken and lost will be redeemed and renewed for the praise of the glory of the Father? What guarantees it? Verse, four, verse 13. In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, something happened. Don't miss this. Paul is saying, when you heard the gospel for the first time, which is truth, when you heard it for the first time, Paul is about to say, something powerful happened. Don't miss it. He said, you were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why is that a big deal? What, what is a seal? When you think of sealing something, what is happening? You are, you are sealing and shutting it off. How does that work in our lives with the Holy Spirit? What Paul is trying to say here is when you were saved, when you received salvation, when you received this word of truth, when you received approval like we talked about last week and the adoption of a son, God said, I'm also going to send a Holy Spirit, my spirit to seal you. Why? Why is that significant? Because forever we will be tempted with thinking that we've lost that approval or lost our adoption or lost the very righteousness of God. And it's God's gracious way of saying, no, I am going to seal it off. I'm going to seal it with the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be forever locked in and forever secured 
that your faith and your approval and your righteousness and your adoption will be forever sealed and locked in and forever secured for the rest of your life because on your worst day, on your worst day, and when life gets turned upside down, you will be tempted to believe. You will believe the lie that I've lost it all. You will be tempted to believe that God is not really for me. You will be tempted to believe that God has abandoned me in my darkest hour and God graciously sends his Holy Spirit to seal it off and say, no, forever, your approval and righteousness and adoption is forever secured and locked in. And he goes a step further. In verse 14, he says, the Holy Spirit who is what? What, does, what role does it serve in your life? It seals you off, but it also does what? The guarantee of what? Our inheritance. The guarantee of this future promise that God will make all things new. That he sends us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. It says, as in other translations, as a deposit. It's as if God is putting a down payment down on you. And he's saying, you're mine forever. But you get a lot of people put a down payment on a lot of things and they walk away. But see, the down payment is always attached to the one who's giving it. His credibility is attached to it. His character is attached to that down payment. So for God to go back on his down payment, he would cease to be God. See, the down payment is forever secured. The down payment is perfect because it comes from God. And so when God puts down his down payment upon you, he's not gambling in the casino and saying, I think this one will turn out okay, but maybe I can take it back. When God puts his seal upon you in the, in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit, he puts his down payment on you and he says, you can take this one to the bank. You can take this one to the bank. It is good to go forever. And that Holy Spirit preaches to us Every day, do you hear him saying, you are approved. You are my adopted son. You are made righteous so that we would never, ever forget of the hope that we have received in Christ. Do not underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives, that preaches this good news to us every single day, that reminds us of our new life, that reminds us of our new identity, that reminds us of our new affections, that reminds, stop standing on your own record and performance and stand on the record and performance of Christ. New identity, new person, new affections. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about when the Holy Spirit enters a person, it's, we, we liken it to the person that we ask to come over and clean out our gutters and they start knocking down walls. And sometimes we, we treat the Holy Spirit as it's just kind of there and it's ethereal and can't really see it and identify it. And, and when the Holy Spirit comes in, he, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't clean out the gutters, he knocks down walls and he takes our cottage and he builds a castle. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The power of the Holy Spirit in you, sealing you and guaranteeing your inheritance forever. The things in your past and the present, the power inside of you now because of the Holy Spirit, do you know this power, this power, this glory, this hope? And when a church, when you understand that the hope 
that resides in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. When a church grabs hold of that and understands that our hope is found in Christ and we become people of hope, watch out. That's an exciting church. That is a church that is energized. That is a church that is fueled. That is a church that is moves and lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. That not only have we received hope, that now we become agents of that very hope to a dying and and broken world. In 1992, during the Battle of Bosnia, uh, the siege of Sarajevo began. And not many people remember that Sarajevo was once a beautiful Olympic city. But things changed in 1992. In 1992, with the siege of Sarajevo, bombings began. And in one village in particular that was bombed the hardest, a bomb fell right on a cafe where people were in line to buy bread and people were sitting out eating with each other. And when that bomb hit, it created a crater that went about 50 feet into the ground. People began to run for their lives. People began to hide. But the lead violinist of the Sarajevo Orchestra had other ideas. The lead violinist of the Sarajevo Orchestra took his violin and he went to the bottom of that bomb crater and he began to play. He began to play all throughout that morning. He began to play all throughout that afternoon and began to and continue to play all throughout the night. And it didn't stop there. He went to the funerals of his friends. He went to the cemeteries. He went into the streets as people were running and running and hiding for their lives because of sniper fire overhead. He played in the streets because that's all he knew to do. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of chaos, the only thing he knew to do was play beautiful music and to bring about hope. He said this, I will do nothing. I will not do nothing in the face of brokenness. I will bring beauty. I will bring hope. And that's who we are. That is who we are, church. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of unrest, and in the midst of chaos and confusion in this world, we are agents of hope. In Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, we will not sit back in the midst of the brokenness. May our motto be, we will not do nothing in the midst of brokenness, but we will be people and agents of hope. That's what we do. That's what we do. Because we have received such a great hope in Christ, we now have the privilege of going out and being agents of that great hope. That's what the church is. A place of hope because we have received a hope that is guaranteed.